Welcome to the Treat the Cause podcast with Dr. Greg Emerson, physician, professional athlete, dive instructor, yoga instructor, wilderness survival instructor, and biohacker. Combining lessons from history with medicine from the West, East, science, tradition, and spirituality to optimize health, performance, and longevity. Hi, it's Dr. Greg Emerson from the Treat the Cause podcast and Treat the Cause YouTube channel. We are down today at the beach near Byron Bay foraging for wild seaweed to get our iodine. Later on in part two of this video, we're going to talk to Pete Hardwick from the wonderful Harvest Cafe in Uribar about wild seaweed foraging, which is an extraordinarily interesting discussion. But before we start that interview, I really just wanted to go through a quick summary of the benefits of iodine during a viral pandemic. And we're going to do the why, what and how system. So why iodine in a viral pandemic? There's four main reasons that iodine is very useful during a viral pandemic. The first is that it's directly virucidal. It attacks the protein capsule, the protein envelope that surrounds the sensitive, vulnerable DNA and RNA of the virus. So it has this protein shield around it and then a membrane around it, and iodine attacks the membrane and the protein shield. It's directly virucidal. Number two is that along with selenium, it stops the virus attaching to our cell wall. Those corona spikes on the virus attached to the receptors on the cell wall. It injects its DNA and RNA, and iodine stops that. Once inside the cell, if we're on iodine, then iodine slows viral replication inside the cell. The virus wants to use our ribosomes, use our machinery to replicate itself, and iodine directly slows the replication of the virus. And the fourth reason is that once the virus is replicated in sufficient numbers, it floats off to the outside or the inside of the cell wall using little pieces of our cell membranes to, co to cover its DNA to replicate, replicate itself, and then it bursts out of the cell. And iodine has been shown to inhibit the viral particles breaking out through our cell membrane. So four main reasons. What is iodine? Iodine is a halogen along with fluorine, bromine, and chlorine. It's a mineral. It's incredibly important for thyroid function. Thyroid hormone is basically a tyrosine molecule with four iodines on it. It's incredibly important for our immune system. As we've just discussed, it's not only antiviral, it's also antifungal, antibacterial, and antiprotozoal. It's a quadruple threat. And iodine is also incredibly important for intellectual capacity and iodine deficiency around the world is the leading cause of intellectual impairment around the world and of course the leading cause of goiter which is enlargement of the thyroid gland because if the thyroid can't get enough iodine to make thyroid hormone it enlarges. So how do we get iodine? Well, around the world, the most common way of getting iodine is in seaweed, which in my opinion is our num number one vegetable we should be consuming because of the iodine richness. And of course, in Japan, the Japanese have a very high iodine intake because of their utilization of seaweed in their diet. If you don't want to forage wild seaweed, which is an amazing skill to learn while we've got some spare time on our hands with social isolation, you can buy kelp supplements or you can buy iodine supplements. 
And finally, I want to discuss the history of iodine because it's fascinating. Iodine was discovered in 1816, I think it was, during the Napoleonic Wars while they were making saltpeter for gunpowder and they found that when they burnt kelp with sulfuric acid to release the saltpeter for the gunpowder, there was a violet smoke released from the burning of the kelp and eventually they found out that that violet smoke was iodine and in fact iodine is the Greek word for violet. So it has a fascinating history. So what's the lesson there? Well, Napoleonic Wars, you know, terrible human tragedy. But what do we find? What happens from that? Something really amazing comes out of these human tragedies and these crises. And in this case, it was the discovery of iodine, which then revolutionised health from a certain perspective. We started learning about thyroid hormone. We started learning about um, our ways to combat my uh, microbes that were eventually discovered. And of course, uh, our brain power increased, which is always, which is you know, a fundamental part of the development of the Homo sapiens species. Okay, coming up next from the harvest in Yurubar, we've got the amazing, knowledgeable pool of expertise of Pete Hardwick, and he's going to run us through his experience with foraging for wild seaweeds, which ones to look for, which ones not to look for, and how to best utilise those seaweeds. So if you're interested in wild seaweed, if you're interested in iodine, if you're interested in viruses, if you're interested in the ancient art of pickling, keep watching because Pete's amazing. All right, we've now transitioned to the Harvest Bakery. We've got Pete Hardwick, who's the forager, head forager at the Harvest. It's like my dream job, but apparently there's a long queue waiting to take over from Pete when he finally retires. I think he's got a job for life, it's so good. And we're going to talk to Pete about ferments and wild foods. It's going to be a slightly strange interview because to comply with social distances rules, even though I'm work at the moment, we're going to sit four metres apart and have our conversation so the camera will be going back and forth, just adapting and surviving. But really, what I really want to talk to Pete about is topical because there was a study which came out yesterday. If you go online and search hunter-gatherer, Google, you'll find the study which they've found that hunter-gatherers have been sourcing grains and plants for at least 100,000 years. We used to think that the main source of food for hunter-gatherers was meats and fruits, but we now know that they have been using tubers for at least 100,000 years. They've found evidence that they used to boil tubers and roots. Tubers and roots are a rich source of carbohydrate and glucose for energy and hunter-gatherers have been using them for 100,000 years by boiling them. And the other really interesting thing they've just found is that that a crisis came along, which is very topical at the moment, 30,000 years ago, which was a change in the climate as we moved into an ice age. Foods became much scarcer and what they discovered the hunter-gatherers did is the hunter-gatherers developed a new technology and it spurned a technological boom around adapting and survival, and that boom was called stone grinding. So for the first time, hunter-gatherers started using stones to grind down seeds to make flour. In Australia, obviously, the most common one was the wattle seed, which is a fantastic native plant, which I'm going to start to use more and more in my cooking. But they used to ground down the seeds and tubers to make flour to unleash 
more energy from plants. Now, the other interesting thing is, so the first lesson there is that crises for Homo sapiens turn out to be a great opportunity to adapt and survive and come out the, on the other side in a better situation through a technological boom, which is, now when I say technology, I don't necessarily mean computers, I mean stone ground grinding with a technological boom. So hopefully through this crisis, we will come out with a better understanding of our relationship to the earth. And as the Maori say, we're gonna go forward by looking backwards and learning from the past. So now let's talk to Pete. Pete's an expert. I don't know where to start with Pete. He's an expert in wild food foraging and mushrooms. He's an expert in ferments. He's ex expert in vinegars. And he's an expert in seaweed. seaweed. So well, let's start with seaweed then, Pete. Okay, tell us, I write a lot about seaweed and I've just done a, a talk about iodine. People often write to me and say, where do I get kelp from? Where do I get seaweed? Now, unlike mushrooms, where you have to, even the world's greatest experts have to be very careful because there's a very, there's no margin of error with mushrooms. That's right. If you get it wrong, you're going to die. Whereas the good thing about plants is there's a much greater margin of error. And seaweeds, my understanding is that all seaweeds are pretty much fine deep. But can you take us through maybe where you learnt about seaweeds and how you use it and what are some of the typical seaweeds that we can get in Australia? So I forage seaweeds on a regular basis for harvest. And I've been um, harvesting seaweeds particularly for the last six years. But I was dabbling with seaweeds prior to that as well. And, yeah, they're a fantastic nutrient source, as you were saying. And, well, you know, of course, they're very high in iodine, which most people know, but other, other elements as well, other trace elements. But the other thing that some of the seaweeds contain, especially the, the brown seaweed, and that includes kelp. It's very high in antioxidants and anti-inflammatories. And, and that's starting to become more widely recognised. Like now you can go into health food shops and they'll be selling kelp flakes. You don't have to buy that kelp from a shop. You can actually forage it, especially from the beach, and it washes up. And kelp is something that, you know, if you, you, you possibly could harvest it off the rocks if you were allowed. But with harvesting seaweeds, and I think this is quite appropriate, it's a good idea to get it off the beach because when it, when it washes up, you've got to make sure you get it fresh. Now, some people who have the luxury of being able to harvest it from the ocean say, oh, don't harvest it off the beach at all because you want the freshest seaweed. But if everyone did that, we'd have all the seaweed picked off the rocks. And so as an environmental control, the government's just saying to people for personal use, you can pick up to 20 kilos of seaweed a day off the beach. And if it's picked up off the beach, it's called rack. Now, the ideal time to get it off the beach is just when it washes up, so it's nice and fresh. You don't want to have the seaweed sitting out there for anything more than, a, especially on a hot day, for, for more than an hour or so. You want to be there, right there on the beach, watching it wash up in the waves. That's the ideal time to get seaweed. And like I say, there's, there's no problem with harvesting off the beach. And the kelp is something that does wash up from time to time. Now, kelp is a very broad-based seaweed, and you'll see it, and it's uh, often about this wide in, in terms of the fronds. It's like a giant fern almost. It's one of the most common seaweeds, very, very rich in anti-inflammatory and antioxidant compounds. And a lot of those actually can treat those diseases that are very common to us in the West uh, in terms of diseases that we suffer from 
as a result of mostly overeating, but overeating the wrong foods. You brought up a couple of really amazing, important subjects then, Pete, and the one that I particularly liked, of course, we've discussed iodine, but I love the fact that you talked about the seaweeds contain all the trace minerals, and, and I yeah. think that seaweeds are probably the primary vegetable that we should be eating. Of course, one of the problems we know about farming, and, and, and it's good to see we're moving back to regenerative farming and biodynamic farming, where we're replacing minerals in the soils, is the loss of minerals from food. Now, there's yeah. no loss of minerals from the ocean. The ocean is still full of 88 trace minerals, thankfully, and which means that seaweed is full of the same 88 trace minerals which we require all of those. So what I wanted to ask you, Pete, next was, what about processing? What do we do when we get the seaweed home? Do we have to dehydrate it or do you just wash it and stick it on the plate? Yeah, you definitely can be using the fresh seaweeds. The, the thing is how to make them really palatable as well. You know, just chowing down on a piece of kelp. You can imagine it's quite a rubbery seaweed and it's got broad fronds. So, you know, you really need to prep it in some way to make it more palatable. So obviously when you're eating food, it's all about palatability as well. So one of my favourite things to do with, say, something, a really thick seaweed like kelp, is to thinly slice it, really thinly slice it, and, and pickle it. And vinegar's great as a preservative because it actually preserves the seaweed and also helps as a solvent to extract the, the compounds in the seaweed. With the Japanese, with Japanese culture, They've got hundreds, if not thousands of years of working with seaweed, with their local seaweeds, and they've mastered how to make seaweed palatable and integrate that into, a, into their dishes. And so in Australia, unfortunately, the Indigenous culture has been so affected by the invasion of non-Indigenous people, of course, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine just how devastating that is. As a, as a forager, I see the, the loss of information and, and I'm, I'm acutely aware of that impact just by the how much information is being lost. So we're having to, if you like, reinvent and rediscover how to traditionally use some of these native seaweeds. And, and really means we have to be a bit inventive. And what I'm doing is I'm borrowing from um, Japanese use of Japanese, of Japanese seaweeds, applying that to the native seaweeds. And the other thing is, you know... The, is again coming unlocking the secrets of these seaweeds how to use them and one of the things that i'm thinking of is like how do, again how do we make this tasty so one of the things i've done is i've made a roasted kelp vinegar and this is a vinegar made from roasting the kelp and and then that roasting process improves the flavor and then i make a fermented kombucha vinegar out of that and i've also done a roasted kelp sea salt and it's the roasted kelp dried up and mixed with sea salt crystals. And this is the kind of thing that you can do. But pickling seaweeds is wonderful, you know, and you can do this at home very easily. And when you find and you discover all, there's such an array of wild seaweeds that are edible, and you can pickle them with in any basic vinegar, like a balsamic vinegar or apple cider vinegar. And it's just a real delight to have a mixture of seaweeds pickling away in the fridge and and you just pull them out as you need to eat them. And, uh, you know, you've got things like sargassum, uh, thinly sliced kelp, um, sea lettuce, one called codium, or it's got another name called dead man's fingers. doesn't sound very attractive, but the seaweed actually looks like dead man's fingers, these blackened fingers. But the flavour is awesome. It tastes like oysters. 
So there's an incredible array of, of different seaweeds. So when you're talking fermenting, not only can you use, take out the seaweed and eat it after it's been a vinegar for a while, you can also use the vinegar as a vinegar as well, which has a slightly yeah. kelp flavour yeah. as well. So you're two, two food sources, you're getting a lovely tasting vinegar and a fermented food. Yeah. Can you do kelp, etc., like you would a sauerkraut and ferment it that way as well? Or is it just vinegar is the main way we use it? Yeah, I mean, you think about um, sauerkraut, of course, the Korean version of sauerkraut is kimchi. And it's done uh, with a bigger range of vegetables than what's traditionally used. And in the Korean kimchis, they include seaweeds. So they thinly slice the seaweeds and they put that into the, into the kimchi. All right, I'm, I'm going to start doing that. That sounds amazing. So I'm going to uh, collect some seaweed. I'm going to chop it in fine strips. I'm going to stick it in my favourite vinegars. So two questions for you, Pete. One... How long will that last for if I put it in the fridge? And secondly, you corrected me before when I said that I thought that all seaweeds were edible. And I've been swimming down in Byron most days over the last few months. And we're with an epidemic of seaweed. And it's, the, it's you know, locally called cornflake yeah. seaweed because it looks like cornflakes. And I get out from my swim and I'm covered in these yeah. cornflake seaweed. But you said that's not edible. So can you run us through about the storage of the ferment and some of the seaweeds which are not edible? The best way to pickle the, pickle the seaweeds, as you say, is finely slice the kelp because it's nice and it's a really thick seaweed. So you want to put it into a form that's just a little bit more easy to sort of chew, if you like. But many of the other seaweeds are fine just to put straight into the vinegar. And uh, especially sea lettuce, look that one up. I could say sargassum, codium, gracilaria is another one. And you can look these up on the internet so you can get familiar with these different types of seaweed that are edible. And they do wash up on the beach from time to time. Another one of my favourites is called Neptune's Pearls. And that's it's actually, it's a brown seaweed, so it's probably really high in those antioxidant properties as well that I was talking about. And it grows on the rocks, but it does wash up on the beach sometimes. It will, they will keep for anything up for a month, say, a couple of months. And you can always tell if they're starting to go off, they just have an off smell. But because vinegar has got a real sourness to it, at a low pH, it keeps up the pathogenic bacteria. And so it's a very good preservative. And that's how pickling works. Pickling works on the basis that the sourness keeps the bacteria out. And you can also add a little bit of extra sea salt and you can even add a little bit of something to sweeten it as well if you like a little bit of honey or whatever suits, you know, your preferred sweetener, just to sort of give it a little bit more of a pal palatability if you need that. I mean, I don't feel like I need to have a sweet pickle, but some people like a sweeter pickle. I just personally prefer the, the, the more sour sour pickles and maybe a little bit of salt if necessary but if you put it in the fridge that's a great backup for the pickling and enhances the the shelf life and the other thing i want to ask you oh, is yeah. when i'm down there foraging kelp is easy to identify yeah there's another one common one i see on the beach and you may have also may have already referenced it which i didn't realize was it kind of looks like more like a big bunch of tiny grapes that's the sargassum okay so can i use that yeah you can use that as well and has it got little little seeds on it as well but, yeah. Right, but don't use those. Yeah, you can use those too. On the on that are on the on the seaweed, you can. I can stick the whole just that whole thing in. The yeah, and, and just grate it. You know, like just go through. Pick it. Obviously, if it's a bad bit. You know, anything that's a bit funky, you just take that off and discard okay. it. And and also, roasting seaweeds bring out the flavour. So dry, clean it, wash it, 
roast it in the if, oven if you want it if you want the roast and you don't have to roast but roasting can enhance flavor Ooh, uh, and and that's what i do I, dark roast and you can see the sea salt and that's a real dark color so that's a dark roasted seaweed it possibly might lose some of the the medicinal properties when you when you do a dark roast okay. it would still have some of those ingredients often even with a dark roast it's a bit like roasting coffee you know coffee if you roast it still has some of its therapeutic properties but it will lose some as well in the roasting process but what the roasting does do is it enhances the flavor. So okay. that's more for the gourmet side of it. But I, I, I think, I think the, the raw seaweeds are more likely to have more of that antioxidant okay. kind of property. Right. Yeah. So the main ones I'm going to come across, it seems when I walk on the beach, sargassum and the kelp yep. in northern New South Wales anyway, tell me about cornflake seaweed. Did I come out looking like some monster from the ocean yeah. when I go for a swim recently? Yeah, look... The best thing for cornflakes with cornflake seaweed is put on your garden. It's, it's not an edible. I looked it up and I found a bit of a, a, a... So I go through all these research papers. So I'm sitting around reading up scientific research papers on the toxicology. That means the, the poisonous side of different plants and things. And I did find this reference, one little reference to a particular toxin that could be in the cornflake seaweed. So not good for eating but fantastic for, for putting on your garden for composting. And it's, this is a wonderful thing about seaweed. Even if it's not an edible seaweed, it, could, it would be great to put on your, in your compost heap because they've got so many nutrients.